Jesus is devastated. His friend is dead. He's crying. His apostles are bewildered. He seems broken at last. His friend's sisters, Martha and Mary, are there, eyes swollen from crying, deep in mourning. Jesus stands before Lazarus's tomb and cries out. Was his voice startlingly strong or broken with the pain that has finally reached a fever pitch? We don't know, but we know what he said. Lazarus, come forth. I'm Tom Hoops, and this is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Today, we are going to cover the death and raising of Lazarus, and what it says about friendship, mostly, and about how truly great St. Martha is as a model for how we can change. It's also a story, I think, about how Jesus will cry when you and I die also. I'll start by reading the Gospel of John chapter 11, then jump over to Luke chapter 10. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But Jesus heard it, and he said, This illness is not unto death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by means of it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. That's how our story begins in John chapter 11. Jesus hears the news of the illness of Lazarus, his friend. And the language here is really remarkable. Look at what the sisters say to him. Lord, he whom you love is ill. Aristotle spoke about what true friendship is, and it's the same thing as true love. We have some friends because they can help us in some way. That's networking. And there's a lot of good in those relationships, but that is friendship of utility, according to Aristotle, not true friendship. There are some friends we have because they share an interest we have. They root for our favorite team, or they are our gossip buddy at work, or they play our video game. That is friendship of pleasure. Again, not true friendship. This friendship between Jesus and Lazarus is true friendship. It's virtuous and loving, willing the good for the other, or as Aristotle puts it, a single soul dwelling in two bodies. That's what we have here. The gospel ends this way. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. It says, using a verb for a special chosen friendship, how much did he love them? Well, we do have a snapshot of their lives together. But that's in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. So let's read that next. Now, as they went on their way, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, You are anxious and troubled about many things. One thing is needful. 
Mary has chosen the good portion, which shall not be taken away from her. So that's the reading from Luke. And let's set the context a little bit first in this ancient uh, Mediterranean society. When this comes up on a Sunday, it's usually paired with a reading where three angels visit Abraham in a passage that is taken as a symbolic reference to the Trinity. It says, quote, The Lord appeared to Abraham by the terebinth of Mamre as he sat at the entrance of his tent. Then it goes on. Looking up, Abraham saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, My Lord, I have found favor in your sight. Do not pass by your servant. End quote. The fact that the Lord himself visits Abraham in the context of his home is important. Abraham's reaction is also important. As St. Ambrose describes it, when Abraham saw the three angels, he, quotes, saw the Trinity typified. He added religious devotion to hospitality, for although he beheld three, he adored one. And while keeping a distinction of the persons, yet he called one Lord, end quote. So what does Abraham do? First, he bows to the ground and greets them. In other words, he speaks to them in both a familiar and a formal way. Second, he bathes their feet, humbling himself and making himself their servant, doing what Christ himself, the second person of the Trinity, will later do for his apostles. Third, he offers them a meal, welcoming them into his family life. These stand as the ways we should greet God when he enters our lives, in prayer in service, and then in our family life. The angel's response is to bless Abraham with the gift of life, promising him a son. God's response to married people who open their lives to him is often the same great gift, a new family member. While the Martha and Mary gospel shows how the family unit is still a favorite place of repose for the Lord Jesus, even many years after Abraham, he teaches them the same thing he taught Abraham also, but with a different reward. For these two sisters, who have no husbands and no children, he gives a different gift of life. He gives himself. Abraham got a son. Jesus himself is the family member these two gain. Martha's complaint to him is something you would expect a family member to say, and his response is to invite her to choose the better part as Mary has, and as Abraham did. He invites Martha to sit at his feet and speak to him and hear what he has to say. He invites each of our families to do the same. And we literally take him on as a family member when we become adopted into the Trinitarian life at baptism. But let's return to that theme of friendship instead, because we get a beautiful glimpse here of the kinds of friendship we can have with Jesus. It's not only possible for us to be friends with Jesus, it is our constant goal, says Pope Benedict. Friendship with Jesus was a theme Pope Benedict XVI turned to again and again. Friendship means sharing in thought and will, he said. It is never a purely intellectual thing, but a sharing of sentiments and will, hence also of actions, in an increasingly personal way, listening to him, living together with him, staying with him, end quote. And that's exactly what Lazarus and his sisters did. They invited Jesus into their home for an honest and intimate relationship. They didn't show him a carefully stage-managed version of themselves, using deferential and honorific words. They were completely themselves around Jesus, sitting close to chat with him and not hiding their disagreements with each other. Because here's a news flash for you. Jesus isn't fooled by the prayer you. He knows the real you. 
In prayer, we say, Dear Lord, I know you are great and I love my sister, so, and I am dedicated to helping better her. But Jesus knows that's not what we say in real life. The real life you says, Are you kidding me? My sister is lazy and annoying. Why doesn't God fix her? Well, Martha's prayer to the Lord is the real Martha praying, not the prayer Martha. He wants to hear from the real me and the real you as well. And the passage tells the story of a sister who helps serve her guests and a sister who just enjoys her guests, at least on the surface. And I think most of us have been there and are totally on the side of Martha. You often see this at dinner parties in the home. There's the spouse who gets to talk and the spouse who has to serve and doesn't get to talk. Just like at Christmas time, there's the spouse that enjoys Christmas as a magical wonderland that just kind of happens. And the spouse who has to spend a lot of time creating the magic wonderland and keeping it running. So we understand and sympathize with Martha's complaint, totally. But then Jesus surprisingly praises the unhelpful sister and corrects the helpful sister, so much so that their names have become descriptors of certain types of people. Martha's are those who are busy helping others, and Mary's are the quiet, contemplative ones. But a few clues help us understand what Jesus has in mind. The first clue In the Gospel of Luke, this story comes in between the parable of the Good Samaritan and the story of Jesus teaching the Our Father. Clearly, in that context, Jesus does not mean that those who show hospitality toward others are wrong. Martha is like the Good Samaritan who tends to the wounds of the man on the side of the road and pays for his stay at the inn. At any rate, she has just welcomed Jesus and any travel companions he may have had to her house and personally cared for them and she has welcomed them with open arms, doing what is necessary to make their stay pleasant. Jesus loves Martha for that, but that is not enough. The Gospel will next tell the story of the Our Father, when Jesus tells the people to trust God and participate in his action, not busy ourselves with our own action. This is what God wants, not a people who are just outwardly good Samaritans, Marthas who solve the world's problems on their own, but people who choose the better part, him, and work to do his will on earth as it is in heaven. For millennia, Jesus' words here have been taken to kind of sum up the two vocations of the laity on the one hand and religious vocations on the other. The laity are husbands and wives and those who live and work out in the world. Religious vocations are consecrated people who become religious sisters, monks, and priests. Here, the message to the laity is a warning. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and worried about many things. Jesus warns religious people a lot elsewhere, but here his message is an encouragement. There is need only for one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, and it will not be taken from her. As St. Ambrose put it, both are good. Quote, virtue does not have one form. In the example of Martha and Mary, there is added the busy devotion of the one and the pious attention to the other to the word of God which, if it agrees with faith, is preferred. And that is absolutely true. The contemplative life is a higher calling than an active calling. Both are sublime, one is greater. The key is the last seven words of the gospel about Mary's work. It will not be taken from her. As St. Augustine put it, quote, With deep concern, Martha prepared what the Holy of Holies and his saints would eat and drink in her house. It was an important but transitory work. It will not always be necessary to eat and drink, will it? End quote. 
He's right. Mary's vocation will continue in heaven. Martha will join Mary's calling there, not the other way around. But without denying that this distinction is real and important, it's possible to see something more. I like how Bishop Robert Barron puts it in his Word on Fire Bible. What Mary has chosen is not so much the contemplative life, but the focused life. She is anchored, rooted in Christ. The implication seems to be that were Mary to help with the many household tasks, she would not be worried and distracted by them, since she could relate them to the center, and that were Martha to sit at the feet of Jesus, she would still squirm with impatience, since her spirit is divided. End quote. You see this focus in the Abraham story, and in how Martha acts later on, as we will see. Like Martha, Abraham never stops serving, but unlike her, he never stops giving the Lord his full attention. But he doesn't see himself as a martyr for having to serve the Lord while others relax. He is privileged to serve and leads others by example. True, he has servants to help, but he also does a lot himself. He gives his heavenly guests the best of everything he has. He gives them his full attention, waiting for them at the entrance of his tent and waiting on them as they eat. Like Mary, he hangs on their every word. Martha should have done that. She should have waited on the Lord and encouraged Mary's help instead of judging and complaining. In fact, that's exactly what she does in John chapter 11, which we can read more from now. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness is not unto death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified by means of it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then, after he said to the disciples, Let us go into Judea again, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were but now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Then he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awake him out of sleep. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, while Mary sat in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, he who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying quietly, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. 
Now, Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Then Mary, when she came where Jesus was and saw him, fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But many of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Okay, so that's as much of the Gospel as I'm going to read at the moment. But one line in the Lazarus Gospel turns the whole Martha and Mary dichotomy on its head. And I want to draw attention to that now. That line is this. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary sat at home. Okay, so wow. Here is that same active Martha, only now her activity is focused on Jesus, and it's a huge virtue. And here's the same old Mary, still sitting, but when Jesus is elsewhere, sitting is no longer so admirable. Let me say more, because I think this gospel proves that centering your life on Christ doesn't change your personality, but elevates it. Mary's tendency to sit when it's directed to Christ is saintly. When it's not, it isn't. Martha's activity when it's not focused on Christ is a problem. When it is, it's impressive. Neither Mary nor Martha's personalities change at all in this story, but supernaturally they are both utterly transformed with the addition of one simple thing, Christ. In fact, Jesus has to send the active Martha back to get Mary off her seat to come listen to him again, which she does, which occasions another remarkable line. Quotes, Now Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him, end quote. Well, think of that. Martha didn't just run to Jesus. She ran right out of her village into the open road to get to him as quickly as possible, even before he got to the town border. Martha is the prodigal son in reverse. In that parable, the prodigal returned and, while he was still at a distance, his father saw him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Here, the prodigal Martha, after focusing her life on Christ, runs out to meet the returning Lord, when he is at a distance. Even Martha's tendency to complain is redeemed when it is focused on Jesus. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, Martha complains to Jesus. And she doesn't accept his four-word response, your brother will rise. Martha-like, she insists that Jesus address her specific situation with true specificity, not a generality. Her persistence pays off as it elicits some of the most consoling words of Jesus ever. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even if he dies, will live. And anyone who lives and believes in me will never die. The old Martha served the Lord with a divided heart. The new Martha goes straight to him when she knows he is near. The old Martha was anxious and worried about many things. The new Martha is confident and insistent about one thing the Lord's promise of resurrection. And this new Martha, now that she is focused on the one thing necessary, doesn't just listen to Jesus, she gives one of the greatest professions of faith in the entire gospel. 
She says, Yes, Lord, I have come to believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, the one who is coming into the world, end quote. That's an incredible profession of the faith. In fact, it's very much like what we've been saying all along, that we live in a confusing maze, and Jesus is the one who has come down among us. Now, if all that seems to slight Mary, just wait. There's a coda to this story where she comes off looking very, very good indeed. But let's return to the story from John's Gospel and see his relationship with another friend, Lazarus. Jesus raises Lazarus to life. Then Jesus, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay upon it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that thou hast heard me. I knew that thou heardst me always, but I have said this on account of the people standing by, that they may believe that thou didst send me. When he had said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with bandages and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So that's a long setup, but I think we've set it up enough. Now we see what's going on here, and we can feel the full gut-wrenching drama of this moment where Jesus encounters this favorite family of his. Jesus is devastated. His friend is dead. He's crying. His apostles are bewildered. He seems broken at last. His friend's sisters, Martha and Mary, are there, eyes swollen from crying, deep in mourning. Jesus stands before Lazarus' tomb and cries out, Lazarus, come forth. And I don't know if his voice is broken with emotion, stern, commanding and confident, or with a quiet, calm confidence. We don't know. But we can picture all eyes turning to the tomb that was stinking with decay when they opened it. And at first they see nothing. Then they see a macabre scene that makes them wince. They see a mummy, a zombie it might look like to them. But then his cloth is unwound, and as we will see later, he lives on, not as a zombie, but as a brother and a friend once again. But before we get into the theology of this moment, I think it's really important to see how this is a true friend, while remembering that we too can be true friends of Jesus. What happens when you have this kind of friendship? Jesus will identify himself with you and care for you and look out for you. When Mary does come out to where he is, Jesus sees her weeping and that pushes him over the edge. He became perturbed and deeply troubled, says the gospel, as he said, where have you laid him? That's the kind of relationship you can have with Jesus as a friend. He will see your worry for your daughter, for your spouse, for your sister, for your brother, for your friend, and it'll touch him too. Then come the famous words, and Jesus wept. I think that's the shortest gospel verse. Isn't that what's said about that? But as he wept, the Jews said, see how he loved him. All the theology of salvation and Jesus's redemptive act comes down to this. Friends don't let friends die if they can help it. And Jesus is not about to let his friend die. He's a warrior going toe to toe with death. And he knows who will win. He says Lazarus is only sleeping because there is no death after Jesus, only sleep. 
Before the almighty power of Jesus Christ, the paltry power of Satan is like a shadow of a bat in the blaze of the sun. Of course, the theological ramifications are all true. This is the sixth of the seven signs John's gospel is structured around, and it leads to Christ's death because he does it in a public way near Jerusalem. He planned it this way. But this is not a static picture of a milestone the Son of God reaches on his road to his paschal sacrifice. This is the picture of a fully human Jesus showing how he loves in a fully human way. As St. John Paul II put it, In Jesus, God loves humanly, suffers humanly, rejoices humanly. And vice versa, in Jesus, human love, human suffering, human glory acquire divine intensity and power. That's incredible. I'm going to read that again. In Jesus, God loves humanly, suffers humanly, rejoices humanly, and vice versa. In Jesus, human love, human suffering, human glory acquire divine intensity and power. So it is true that this is a theological milestone in Christ's trek to Jerusalem. But it's also true that the death of his friend broke his sacred heart and he wept for sorrow at the pain of the sisters Lazarus left behind. And that brings us to some beautiful ways this passage answers our fundamental questions. Why did God let my loved one die? This is what Martha, Lazarus' sister, wants to know. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, she says. He answers, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Those who experience death are firmly in his power still. If that tempts anyone to think death is no big deal, he has an answer for that, too. Jesus wept. While death is not the final victor in any life, the separation of soul and body is evil and sad because death was never meant to be. It was brought by sin, by human beings turning away from God and handing their futures over to Satan. When Jesus sees death, he never simply accepts it. It hurts every time. Which makes another question arise. Why does God allow evil things like death if he dislikes them so much and wants to reverse them anyway? When Jesus announces the death of Lazarus, he says he could have and would have prevented it, but chose not to. He even says, I am glad for you that I was not there, that you may believe. We may think that a world where everything goes right and Jesus makes problems disappear before they happen would be better than the world we have. But Jesus is glad that some bad things happen. Why? Because by allowing evil in our lives while giving us the ability to overcome it, he allows us to know and love the good more than our limited minds could do without this help. Okay, so all this is great about life and death, but let's do what Martha did and ask for more specificity. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. That doesn't sound like a future thing, but it's something that should happen right now because we're alive right now. Dostoevsky's book, Crime and Punishment, sees this present-day application of the Lazarus story very clearly. It's a story about a man so convinced by modern ideologies that they've twisted him into something horrifying. It's not a spoiler alert to say he actually becomes a murderer, but worse than that, he kills not once but twice in one of the more gruesome ways imaginable. The story follows Raskolnikov as he plans his crime. He thinks he can be an extraordinary man like Napoleon and commit a murder against someone that need not live anyway in his estimation. 
Complications arise, and then after the murder, he is punished mercilessly from within himself. At a key moment, though, he confesses his sin to Sonia, a love interest who also happens to be a prostitute. She's shocked and disgusted by what he's done, but not by him. She meets with him, and they read the story of the raising of Lazarus together. In fact, the text of the story is right there in the novel. It's a real turning point in the book, and it's what commits him to prison and Sonia to serving him. And it all happens to come four days after the murder, just like the Lazarus story comes four days after his death. Dostoevsky was a very thoughtful Orthodox Christian, and the meaning here is that Jesus comes to us as the resurrection and the life, not at some future point in time, but today. Raskolnikov had died every bit as much as Lazarus had died. His death was a death by sin, not a physical death, but a spiritual death. And Jesus hates when his friends die. That includes the death of sin. We'll return to Lazarus and his family and rehabilitate Mary a little later on, and also explain how the raising of Lazarus was a key trigger to the crucifixion of Jesus. But for now, I want to stick on this friendship theme and realize how having Jesus as our friend can do for us what it did for Lazarus, what it did for Martha, what it did for Mary, and what it did for Raskolnikov. Jesus Christ can solve the seemingly intractable problems of our own life. The resurrection of Lazarus should teach us that our friendship with Jesus isn't just a warm human friendship. It's a friendship with God whose power will astonish us. We too are trapped. We're like Mary, great at sitting and listening, but not so great at getting up and going, maybe. We are like Martha, great at arranging the details of our lives, but not ready to incorporate Christ into our to-do list. Or we're like Raskolnikov. We fell for a lie about who we are and why we are here, and we did things that eat at us, things that we convinced ourselves were fine, but that left us feeling evil and wicked and compromised and trapped. Jesus stands outside our tomb. He's not angry. His eyes are wet with tears. Like Sonia, he's shocked by what we did, but convinced more than ever that we need his help. People tell him not to bother with us. We will bring nothing but the stench of decay into the world. He ignores them and cries out, My friend, come forth. And here we are, wrapped in bandages, zombies awaking at last from our obsessions and noticing him. It happened at our baptism. It happens at each confession. It happens in a small way whenever we recommit ourselves to Christ. And what we discover is that it is like dying and rising each time, dying to the twisted story of our lives and awaking into Jesus Christ's extraordinary story. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Benedictine College is transforming culture in America through our mission of community, faith, and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Leave a review and share with a friend. Help us tell others about the extraordinary story.